What a delight to be in this church, a church that is based on the Word of God. Of all the preachers in America, Stephen Davey, with his ability to be able to have insight to Scripture, to apply it, to treat it so accurately, he's really in a class by itself. You are very, very fortunate people. I need to say that. If I were to preach 71 messages on the book of Revelation, (laughs) I'd empty the church. (laughs) I notice that your logo is bringing the Word of God home, and then you have a baseball. Well, that, of course, reminds us of Chicago, the Cubs. You may not have heard of them, but we have a baseball team (laughs) called the Chicago Cubs. We actually can buy a T-shirt in Chicago, a Cub T-shirt that says, Anyone can have a bad century. (laughs) Really, yeah. And when they were in the playoffs a few years ago, they uh, got wiped out three in a row. When they were practicing, apparently, during practice, their pitching machine pitched a no-hitter. I mean, we're, we're talking about the Chicago Cubs here. When I was with you two years ago, I'm sure I mentioned my parents. Uh, My parents were married for 77 years. My dad died a year and a half ago, so I mentioned that. He died at 106. My mother is 101 and still living. Now, until my father died, my parents lived so long that I'm sure all of their friends in heaven thought that they just didn't make it. But my parents did make it, my father made it, and my mother looks forward to meeting Jesus. What a delight it is to be here. And to have my wife, Rebecca, who was honored earlier. She doubles all of my joys. She halves my sorrows, and she triples my expenses. (laughs) What do you mean they're quiet, Stephen? looked into the mirror the other day. I said to her, honey, I don't look 68, do I? She said, no, no, you don't. But she said, you used to. (laughs) (laughs) Living in a nation under judgment. I think that all of us would agree that the silence of God is one of the greatest mysteries in the universe. How can God remain silent in the midst of a nation that has lost its way, in the midst of violence, in the midst of even natural disasters, which we are experiencing? In the face of indescribable human suffering, God sometimes appears to be silent. There was a prophet in the Old Testament who struggled with that. His name is Habakkuk. If you would find it, please, in your Bible. Habakkuk is actually one of the minor prophets. Minor not because of lack of importance, but minor because of size. I'm reading the ESV, and my prophet Habakkuk is on page 785, but you can find it if you need to in your table of contents because I want you to follow along with me. Habakkuk was prophesying to Judah, the southern kingdom. He was prophesying a time of judgment and... uh, He knew that the reforms of Josiah had not worked very well, they had not lasted, and now the nation was on its way to judgment. As you look at the book, you need to understand that Habakkuk is having a dialogue with God. 
He speaks to God. Actually, he complains to God. That would be more accurate. And then God answers. Then he complains to God again, and God answers. That's the way to follow along in this book. Let's begin with uh, verse 2 of uh, Habakkuk chapter 1. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. The law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. What he's asking is the question of, O God, where are you? You are like the pagan gods. Because the pagan gods uh, do not hear, they are deaf, and that's what he's saying. Where are you? You do not hear when I cry out to you. You are silent. And the pagan gods do not see, they are blind. And it seems as if God neither hears nor sees. Where are you in the midst of this process? And we've all felt that way about God at times, haven't we? Now, God answers. God answers. It's like a telephone conversation. God speaks to him in verse 5. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. God is saying, are you ever in for a surprise? For I'm doing a work in your day that you would not believe if it were told you. Behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards. And God goes on and describes them and says, they're on their way. The Chaldeans, known as the Babylonians, I'm raising them up and they are going to come and judge you. Wow, Habakkuk says, I'm sorry I asked. <laughs> Fact is that the Chaldeans or Babylonians, they specialized in torture. They liked to dismember people. They liked to take them apart. They liked to do great, great evil. And God says they are coming against you. And if you think that there is violence and disrespect for the law... You ain't seen nothing yet. It's going to get far worse before it ever becomes better. Actually, this prophecy was fulfilled because back in 586, the Babylonians came against Jerusalem and in coming against Jerusalem, you remember, carried off the inhabitants and you have a lot of judgment as we talk about the captivity. But now what Habakkuk needs to do is to retrain his mind. What he has to say is, I have to learn to believe God in a nation that is clearly under God's judgment. And he himself becomes a part of that judgment. When God judges a nation, everyone within that nation, believer or unbeliever, is part of the judgment. You think, for example, Daniel, who was carried off into that captivity, he was taken to Babylon. Daniel was a righteous man, but he got caught up in God's judgment and had to endure the temporal effects of God's judgment, not the eternal effects. Thank God we're exempt from that. But temporally, we are all related. We are all on the same ship. You say, well, Pastor Lutzer, is America under judgment? One day a politician said to me, do you think that God will ever judge America? 
I had to smile because, of course, God is presently judging America. Remember this, that all sin has some immediate judgments. Your sin individually has immediate judgment, immediate consequences, judgment. But when a nation begins to accumulate its sins, when a nation begins to reject God and shake its fist in God's face, those sins accumulate and they begin to boomerang throughout the nation. And the judgment becomes more intense and more severe. I believe in America we are in judgment religiously. We're under judgment. We have said to God, you have to stay on your side of the wall of separation and church and state, and you had better stay there. You are rejected from law, from science, from uh, education, from government. Today, someone printed for me an article that appeared yesterday in the Tribune in Chicago that a teacher was expelled from a university in Illinois for saying that he agreed with the Roman Catholic Church that, uh, that homosexuality was immoral. It was in yesterday's Tribune. So what we are really saying is, God, you stay over there, and what we're going to do is we're going to do our own thing. The Bible says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Do you think that God is going to endlessly tolerate us telling him that he can have no effect in America's public life? So we're under that religiously. Mind you, this exclusion, the Muslims will not accept it. About a week ago, I heard on the news that Muslims in New York were insisting that the schools recognize Muslim holidays. They will not accept the neat division of keeping God out of public life. So we're under judgment religiously. We're under judgment economically when you stop to think of the fact that We as a nation are in debt, $14 trillion. Now that's easy to say, but when you stop and do the math and find out how much $14 trillion is, it's a chunk of change. Now I think that a trillion, isn't it true that a trillion is a thousand billion? I was telling the folks this morning that when it comes to arithmetic, I've always said that as long as I'm right 90% of the time, who cares about the other 5%? It's, an, it's a travesty that our nation should be so far in debt. God said to Israel, if you follow me, you will lend to many nations, but you will not borrow. And we keep borrowing and we keep, we no longer print money. We just take computers and move the decimal point over, which is exactly what our government does. And this idea that we're going to spend our way into prosperity, I can assure you it will not work. It didn't work for Rebecca and me when we were first married. Spend our way into prosperity, and America is going to be under judgment, already is, already is under judgment economically. We're in judgment, under judgment morally, morally. When you think not only the killing of preborn infants, but you think of the tsunami of pornography, and you think also that tonight, 20 million children in the great United States of America will go to bed with only one parent in the home. Fatherlessness and its huge effects on society and crime. We are under the judgment of God, and you and I need to learn to live in a nation 
that is under judgment. Habakkuk had to learn it, and you and I need to learn it as well. So, all right, how far have we come? He complains, God answers. It's not the answer he wanted. He's sorry that he asked, but there it is. Judgment is coming. An evil nation is going to rise up against you. So now he has a second complaint. He's really struggling, more than he did at first. And you'll notice that we pick up the second complaint in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. And, O Rock, you've established them for reproof. You are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at the traitors and are silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? What he's saying is, God, I don't get this. What you are doing is inconsistent with your character. First of all, it seems to be inconsistent with the holiness of God. You are of purer eyes than to see evil. Of course, we know that God always sees evil, but what he means is you don't regard it, you don't use it. Point of fact, of course, God says, yes, I do, I use evil. And so he he struggles with the fact of the holiness of God and then the justice of God. What he's saying is we as a nation are wicked to be sure, but we're not as wicked as they are. Notice, you're going to use the wicked to uh, swallow up those who are more righteous than he is. You're going to use the wicked to swallow up us who are not as evil as they are. So Habakkuk, you see, is struggling with the holiness of God and the justice of God. Actually, isn't that the way in which we speak as well? We say, Lord, you know, we're wicked as a nation, but we don't, we don't encourage young people to strap on bombs and blow themselves up and then before they do that, walk into places such as uh, stores and marketplaces and kill all these innocent bystanders. We don't do that. We don't kill those who convert from our religion to another. We don't train people to fly airplanes so that they can fly them into buildings and kill thousands of people. We don't do that, Lord. We don't do that, Lord. God says, that's exactly what I do. As a matter of fact, in the book of Isaiah, you find that God says, I'm raising up the Assyrians. They are the club of my anger and I am going to use them to judge Israel. God says this is not inconsistent with who I am. Now, what he really does now is in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, I will take my stand at the watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. What he's saying is, I will stand there on the watchtower and I will see what God has to say and I'll be anxious to hear his reply to my complaint. And the Lord answers. He says in verse 2, the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. The idea there is take the vision, write it down, and I believe that we have it written down in the book of Habakkuk, write it down and uh, make it plain so that the runner, in those days they had runners to communicate a message, well, the runner runs and so he is able to read it plainly to people and tell them what God is saying. 
And then God says this, for the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. In other words, the fact that you don't see me doing anything doesn't mean that I'm not. You may not see it, but remember, it's coming. My justice is on its way. And then you have this verse of Scripture, verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. It is the heart of Habakkuk. This is an important verse quoted three times in the New Testament. When Martin Luther was teaching the book of Romans, he came across it in chapter 1, where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then he says, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, as it is written, and he's quoting now, the just shall live by faith. And if you've never received Christ as Savior, you've never believed on him, remember this, that salvation is a free gift given to those who acknowledge their sins, who trust Christ by faith. It is not a matter of works. It cannot be a matter of works. So there you have the heart of Habakkuk. The just shall live by faith. The just don't have to see God working in order to believe that he is working. What follows now are five different woes that God gives. Five different woes. Let's look at them very quickly. Verse 6. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Verse 9, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. Woe to that person who depends upon his wealth and his security. Verse 12, woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. And then I have to include verse 14. It's not a woe, but it's a beautiful promise. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. But verse 15 is the next woe. Woe to him who makes his neighbor drunk. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. This is the way they live in debauchery. Woe to them. Woe to idolaters. Verse 19. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, etc., etc. What's going on there in the text? What God is doing is helping Habakkuk to see that even though he's going to be using evil people to bring about his his purposes and his discipline, namely the Chaldeans, what he wants Habakkuk to see is that God is just, God will judge the wicked. The very wicked that he uses, he judges. He's going to judge Israel righteously, but he's also going to judge the Chaldeans righteously. And Habakkuk needs to know that he can depend upon God to eventually bring justice to every situation. Now, notice what Habakkuk says in verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth keep silence before him. Did you notice in verse 13 of chapter 1, He says, why do you idly look at traitors and are silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? He is accusing God of silence. 
And now he is saying it is time for him to be silent in the presence of the Lord. And there's a transformation going on in his soul. As he waits for God, he begins to pray. And let's look at the prayer that Habakkuk prays. He says in chapter 3, verse 2, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. What's going on here in the text? Most commentators believe that Habakkuk is describing the deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt. Because it goes on to say that God shakes the nations. He goes on to say that God had the rivers and the mountains under his control. And he begins to speak about the sovereignty of God even in what we would call today natural disasters. If the just live by faith... What does that look like? First of all, Habakkuk is renewing in his mind confidence in God in two respects. First of all, he is convinced now of the control of God. The fact that God has everything in control. Whether it's nations or nature, God is in control. Habakkuk says, I just have a fresh revelation from God, and you and I always need that more than we need answers to our questions. God is in control. Let me ask you a question. How strong were these Chaldeans anyway? How strong really were they? How strong was Pilate in the presence of Jesus? How strong is radical Islam anyway? How strong is the devil? Have you ever wondered that? You've said to yourself, I wonder how strong the devil is. Aren't you glad you came to church today, by the way? <laughs> because today I'm going to tell you exactly how strong the devil is. He is as strong as God allows him to be and not one whit more. I'll take the 14 amens as they were given. <laughs> Just imagine. The devil cannot wiggle unless God gives him permission to wiggle. Because the devil, moment by moment, can only work within the parameters given to him by God. So Habakkuk is saying, I'm reminded now of the fact that God is in control. God is sovereign over nations and nature. But you know, it's easy for you and me to believe that and still live with anxiety. And I'll tell you why. For most Christians, the issue is not whether or not God is in control. We all believe that. The issue is, can we trust God to do right by us? It isn't whether he's in control, but does he care? That's the thing we want to know. Living in a nation under judgment, uh, reeling from the economic chaos that has been created by our leaders over many years, is it really true that we can trust God in the middle of what is happening in society? Now notice how this prayer ends. 
In verse 16, he says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Is that the way you feel when you watch the news? That your legs tremble beneath you and rottenness enters into your bones. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. The Babylonians aren't here yet, but it's coming. The double dip inflation or triple dip inflation is on its way and we're going to have to wait for it. But notice how he ends, verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines... The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flocks be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. And please sing this. That's what he says to the choir master with stringed instruments. Here's something you can sing about. Now, in Habakkuk's day, he didn't have a retirement plan. Uh, He didn't have money in the bank. He didn't have the assets that you and I do. The way you determined your dependence on the economy was whether or not the fig trees gave figs and whether or not there were cattle in the stalls. What he is saying is, even if that isn't there, Let me interpret this for you as a paraphrase. Though the economy should slump, though my retirement count should shrivel to nothing, though all of my investments should turn to rust, though I'm losing my job, and I know that this is easier to say than do, but stay with me, though I'm losing my job and though I cannot pay my rent, And though it seems as if I've made huge mistakes in investments, and even though the doctor last week told me things about my body that I thought could only be true about other people, and I've been told that I have a dreaded disease, yet I will rejoice in God, and I will give thanks to God, the God of my salvation, because what the prophet said is God not only is in control, but God also cares. It was weak, but I'll take the amen from (laughs) over on this side. God also cares. The Bible says, casting all of your care upon him, for he careth for you. There was a man by the name of William Cooper. William Cooper, by the way, went through emotional problems because of abuse, evidently, in his background. He actually tried to commit suicide a few times. But yet he believed God and he blessed the church. You know, he gave us the song, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Imagine that. But based on this text, he wrote these words. Though vine nor fig tree neither, their wanted fruit should bear. Though all the fields should wither, nor flocks nor herds be there. Yet God the same abiding, his praise shall tune my voice. For while in him confiding, I cannot but rejoice. Habakkuk said, I will never interpret the silence of God as the indifference of God. 
God cares about the nation. He has that in control, but he cares about me. And if everything that I've been depending upon should fall apart, God and I will make it. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Now the question is, how do you and I apply this? In a moment, I'm going to take you through a prayer. What I want you to do now is I want you to think of the three greatest anxieties that you brought to this church, your three greatest anxieties. Do you have them clearly in mind? I don't want you to write them all down because you didn't bring enough notepaper with you for this. What we're going to do is we're going to give them to God. You see, the problem is we pray about many things and we keep saying, God, please do something. And then we pray the same prayer with no thanksgiving, with no joy, because we always take the burdens back on our shoulders. Today, I want us to give them to God in a new and a complete way. In order to do that, let me give you an illustration. Rebecca and I flew to Europe about two months ago. Let's suppose that uh, we got on a plane in Chicago, United Airlines, and we're flying to Frankfurt, Germany. Let's suppose that after we start to cross the ocean, I think to myself, you know, maybe the pilots are falling asleep. So I go to a flight attendant and say, would you make sure that the pilots are awake? You know, in the days before security was a problem, they actually used to be able to go into the cockpit. So let's suppose that they go in, that she goes in, she comes back and says they're awake. Half an hour later, I say to myself, I know that I have fallen asleep in a half an hour at times. I wonder if the pilots are falling asleep. So I ask her, would you go check to see if these United Airlines pilots are falling asleep? She comes back and says, no, they're awake. I'm a little embarrassed to ask again, so I begin on a different track. I say to her, what time does this plane land in Frankfurt? So we begin having that discussion. And then I say, well, you know, now that we're talking, uh, why don't you just check to see whether or not the pilots are asleep? By that time, she wants to make a deal with me, and the deal is this. She's saying, look, I'll pour you a cup of coffee if you promise to step outside and drink it. All right? That's what she wants to say. And then she says to me, you're insulting those pilots. By wondering whether or not they've fallen asleep, you are insulting them. And I would be. From my heart to yours today, you and I insult God all the time. We give him a problem. We plead because we don't believe, so that's why we keep pleading. And there's a place for pleading, I'm sure. But then God hasn't done anything. We wake up in the morning. He hasn't solved the problem. He hasn't brought in the money that we need. He hasn't solved this issue and that issue. And we say, well, now, now I wonder if he has fallen asleep. I'll remind him again just in case he fell asleep along with me last night and didn't do anything. And so we keep insulting God. It's not wrong to pray for the same thing over and over again. But when we really do commit a matter to God, when we really transfer it from our shoulders to his, when we do that, we pray about it, but we pray with thanksgiving because we see God even in evil as Habakkuk had to. 
And so now we pray in faith and we pray with confidence and, dare I say it, we even joy in God, the author of our salvation. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to commit ourselves to God. Now, I need to tell you that I'm going to pray briefly and then you're going to pray, but you can't do it maybe in two minutes. You have to get alone with God, spend as much time as you need to to make that transfer. Because anxiety has a way of coming back on our shoulders. And what we need to do when it comes back is to affirm that it is not ours, it is God's. And we need to walk in that commitment. Some of you are going to struggle horribly. Like one woman said, if I were to give up all of my anxious thoughts, if I were to actually clean my mind of anxiety, I would have nothing to think about. My mind would go blank. (laughs) Because anxiety has been your companion in the morning. Anxiety is your companion at night. Anxiety is there when you wake up in the morning. And guess what? Jesus said that anxiety doesn't cause anything. It doesn't cause your hair to grow. It doesn't cause you to grow taller. It's like uh, driving a car with the brakes on. Hurts your body. Doesn't change a thing. Bible says, commit your way unto the Lord. One further illustration. A woman was walking along with a heavy suitcase, and uh, the suitcase was too much for her, and then a bus came. She was glad. She got on the bus, paid her fare, but continued to hold up the suitcase in the aisle. Someone said to her, why don't you put the suitcase down? She said, I'm glad that the bus is carrying me. I can't expect it to carry the suitcase, too. If you're a believer in Jesus today, you're on the bus. You might as well put down the suitcase. Jesus Christ's shoulders are so competent that the governments of the world will rest upon his shoulders. Are we ready to take our economic issues, our health issues, our relational issues, and give them wholly to God? Wives, Give your husband to God. Don't try to change him. It hasn't worked, has it? Give him to God and then say, good riddance, okay? Just trust God. Are you ready to pray? I'm going to pray, and then you're going to pray. If you've never trusted Christ as Savior, you believe on him. You can even believe where you are. However means, by whatever means, you are listening to this message. Let us bow in prayer. Father, we are often so fearful because we know that you are unpredictable in what you might let us go through. And that fills our heart with fear. Help us to believe, Father, not only that you are in control, but that you're also good and you are also trustworthy. And that despite all the mysteries of what you are doing, that we can trust you and rejoice in you. But, Father, among us there are those who are awash with anxiety. Who's going to come and deliver them? Only your word and your spirit. Bring deliverance at this moment, or at least the beginning of deliverance. And now, my sisters and brothers, I want you to pray to God, and I want you to give him 
those three anxieties. Name them. Say, Jesus, I transfer these to your shoulders. I put down the suitcase. Would you tell them that? Father, we are weak, we are frail, we are given over to our own anxieties. Bring deliverance to your people today, I pray. With Habakkuk, transform us. That we might know that you have all power, but that you also love us and that you care. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.